From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair podcast. It's Friday, I think. Sure is. Um, <laughs> it's been a long week. Oh. And uh, yeah, we've been reading stuff. Zach. We have. <laughs> well, I think part of the reason for your long week is what I just uh, was reading today. Sure. Uh, which was uh, <laughs> to update listeners who might not read the site regularly, which, you know, tisk tisk. Mm-hmm. The intrepid Dave Infante has added more to his already impressive reporting on the Anchor Brewing story uh, with the scoop last night as we record, so Wednesday night for those of you listening to this on Friday, which is probably most of you, uh, that the uh, Anchor Brewing Union, um, the union of workers who that formed uh, in I think, 2019, is intending to try and find a way to purchase the brewery and keep it open. And there's you know, some interesting things in Dave's piece, which obviously we'll link to in the show description about kind of what they're intending to do and whether this is something that might be possible. The response from the Sapporo USA side has been, uh, let's say, non-committal, which, you know, fair enough. I guess it's mm-hmm. a negotiation in a sense. But, um, you know, given the sort of response that this story has gotten and at least the momentary flooding of support for Anchor Brewing, you know, we, we've all sort of seen the you know, shortages or the fact that it's sold out in locations kind of, you know, nationwide uh, when this news came out, et cetera, you know, it's possible they'll be able to raise the funds to purchase the brewery, especially at what will undoubtedly be a distressed price. Mm. You know, I think the, the funny thing to me or the interesting thing to me here is, you know, kind of these ideas uh, floating about how to like kind of make this happen with the sort of sideline of like, oh, maybe we'll turn rebuilding the brewery into a reality show or something. And like, I mean, maybe that'll work. I don't really know. It's unclear to me what makes a reality TV show work these days. Not really in my genre, but it was cool to, you know, to see that there is this interest in trying to keep the the brewery viable. And of course, most excitingly and, and importantly, hopefully keeping a lot of the people who worked at the brewery, who are the ones who are most, you know, frankly screwed by this development, potentially, you know, letting them not only continue to keep jobs, but take ownership of them in a much more meaningful way. Yes. So that's a developing story. Yeah. We'll we'll keep watching that and covering it on the site. For me this week, something I, you know, found very enjoyable was a piece by Pete O'Connell on triple IPAs and Mm. how they're disgusting and pointless an opinion piece, of course, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <IPA>. really, <laughs> yeah, but I, I thought it was very smart and well done um, and basically explores how when where we're at kind of in craft beer with IPAs and double IPAs and triple IPAs and and this kind of race to make them bigger and boozier and flavor bombs and and how uh, so few people are doing it well and getting it right. Um, I don't know. I think it's kind of commentary on, on craft beer right now. So mm-hmm. it, it's in a bit of a sad place. <laughs> um, but this was a, a really great piece, and I encourage people to read it. Yeah, great illustration, for one, on the yes, piece. Just like hammer on the point. Nice work, Danielle, <laughs> as always. Uh, but also, the you know, it's fascinating to me because it, craft beer in its like, I feel like in its last couple decades, sort of inevitably is like goes back to the like double and triple IPAs. Like I don't know, like 
an X, you can't quite quit or something like that. Like, <laughs> you know, you kind of get these counter movements that are like, no, IPAs are meant to be like sessionable. They should be like six and a half percent alcohol. They shouldn't be super hoppy, like super powerful beers. But then the, the sort of undeniable fact that for as much as uh, Pete and others may not find this style appealing, there is a pretty significant audience for them, oh, which God. is why they keep getting made and keep getting purchased and keep getting great scores on you know your various review sites and stuff like that so yeah it, it is a it is a conundrum and it's i think for beer drinkers who enjoy ipas but maybe not the sort of outer edges of just how ipa and ipa can get maybe <laughs> there is something depressing about seeing so much of the energy and frankly like the quality hops go in this direction yes yeah we i mean we we uh posted this on instagram and there were a lot of comments. Um, but yes, as you mentioned, a lot of people who are like, I love IPA. I love triple IPA. So, yeah. um, okay. So today we are chatting about something that we've been seeing uh, a lot in New York City and something we've been talking about on the editorial team of, you know, these places opening and instead of having set menus, um, the they're kind of relying on guests to share their flavor preferences or taste preferences and then making recommendations based off of those and 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 I wanted to talk about this because I have a very cynical take mm-hmm. <laughs> on on this approach and strategy to hospitality but I wanted to see what you thought Zach and if this was something that you were seeing uh, on your side of the country well I can't say that I've seen a lot of it to be honest, I mean, I think in a way I trace back, it's like a weird inversion of the like dealer's choice trend, right? Yes. Where I think we've seen that and it continues to be popular in a lot of cocktail bars that like kind of like maybe there you have a little bit of agency as the drinker to say like, oh, I like tequila or oh, I don't want sweet or whatever. But like the sort of notion of like, oh, I will surrender some element of control and that'll be fun. And like, I think we've talked about dealer's choice on here before. I think we both agree that maybe it's a little less fun than it seems on the face of it. But like, yeah. there's a place for that maybe. But I will say, and I really want to ask you a question back about this, which is like, doesn't this feel like just putting all of the load on the guest to do what a bar manager or beverage director should do? Yes. And but yes and no. Because in some examples, there's a wine bar, for example, and their whole thing is like they give you a wheel and the wheel has like vibes and like feelings on it. And you use the wheel to share how you're feeling. And then the servers make recommendations for wines based on that. It's like you're not doing too much work. It's just a very specific approach <laughs> to to getting recommendations, I guess. So I th- I don't know, I, but I think it's like okay. So without being cynical, the idea then is that a server can say, "Okay, you're feeling a certain way, and you like a certain color. Now I need to use my expertise to recommend the perfect glass of wine for you for that particular mood." I got to tell you, as someone who served for a long time, Uh that sounds fucking miserable. Is that the most ridiculous thing? (laughs) I just... I'm such an asshole, but I I just think this is like the most ridiculous thing. Yeah. I mean, it feels like 
look, I, I will again kind of say one of these things, which is there's no doubt that one of the challenges in service, and especially I think when it comes to drinks, you know, wine, cocktails, each in their own way, is sort of getting from from the server's perspective, the bartender's perspective, the psalm's perspective, whomever, going from whatever sort of half-formed notion the guest has about what they might want to drink to a fully realized beverage in front of them that they enjoy can be difficult, sure. I think. And and it could be the case that the traditional means of doing that or the various modes of doing that, like a printed menu where people look at them and go, I want that, or even a conversation where you sort of say like, well, what are some things you do like? That each of those forms has its own limitations and potentially could put some percentage of guests, if not make them uncomfortable, at least maybe not serve their needs super well. But I to indulge my cynical side, Joanna, don't you kind of think that they're just going to serve you whatever they sort of think you yes. should have regardless of what you tell them? Like if you tell them your mood is like you're anxious and like a little sleepy, like what is that going to, I don't just don't, what does that translate into a drink? Like an espresso martini? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I, I think that was, you know, more seriously, I think that is what I assume of these places who approach it like this. Yeah, they can essentially, because the idea is like the people who are going to places like this don't know much about wine. Mm -hmm. And so they're relying on, the service team there to make these informed decisions to help expose them to new things or, you know, teach them about wine um, versus maybe a clientele that knows more about wine. And so, yeah, I think it's like you have people come in who don't really know and you could pretty much serve them anything. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't I hope that's, you know, hope that's not the case. I just, I, I have to wonder though, Joanna, like if you went into this place or, or or maybe even setting aside the Wheel of Fortune-esque model, which now I'm just picturing like you step up to the wheel and you spin it and just like whatever <laughs> it lands on is what you have to drink. Like that at least seems like it could be fun and a like more gimmicky, but yeah. also kind of like, I don't know, you it landed on, you know, uh, Napa Merlot, that's what you're drinking tonight, like I don't know, that could at least be kind of fun or something. I don't know. But to me, this this whole thing, you know, it kind of speaks to this conversation that wine and, and I think spirits too have in their from time to time, which is like, is the language of these beverages so incomprehensible to many people who would otherwise want to indulge or participate that we have to find workarounds? And and I mean, I think this is a, a question I want to ask you. Like Maybe this specific model or these specific examples are are too gimmicky or or the cynical side of us can't really believe that we're not just going to get whatever gets the bar the highest margins because, like, why would yeah. they miss the opportunity to profit more? But, like, do you – are you sympathetic to the idea that there is some benefit here in kind of presenting choices in a different framework than most other establishments do? Yeah, I think – and this is something we've – talked about as well maybe not on the pod but definitely um at the office like i've definitely seen places approach wine like by the glass uh menus especially with you know maybe they have the name of the wine or they don't and it says something like fruity and juicy you know mm -hmm. like giving more of these descriptors that feel more approachable and 
comprehensible to people than maybe a wine name that they wouldn't necessarily know anything about beyond if it's a red or a white. You know what I mean? I think that makes a lot of sense to me if it's clear and that's their approach and there are prices. I think that's the other part of this that, um, you know, I, I kind of approach a little bit skeptically is that without a menu, you can say, you know, we're going to give you something you really like and then it can get to the end of the night and you see the bill and it was, you know, these recommendations were all a $20 glass of wine, $26 glass of wine. And, and I think that's where it can get a little dicey for guests. Yeah. I also think that you make a really good point which is that a part of having a set of options for a guest is that you can compare things. You can, and whether that point of comparison is price or the way the cocktail or wine is described. I mean, I think that is an important function of what uh, a bar or restaurant can do with their beverage options. I mean, sure, probably, you know, to some extent you're having to make a certain set of decisions about what you're offering, both in terms of, from the incredibly broad pool of potential wines or cocktails you could serve and even you know the things that you might be prepared to make or have on hand that are the the things that you're pouring by the glass or the cocktails that you're sort of featuring on your cocktail menu you have to make some decisions but you do have to also kind of give people the yeah kind of the framework in which you are working and so i feel like there's this issue that comes with anytime like anytime you take out of the hands of the guest, the ability to look at their options and make a decision based on the major, you know, the information at hand. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, you run the risk of people walking away feeling like they just didn't get the experience they want. And whether, I mean, think about this sometimes like with food, right? I can't imagine going to a restaurant and then being like, let's talk about what kind of mood you're in. And then we'll like bring you food that fits yeah. that mood as far as we can decide. And then like you get a dish and you're like, oh, it's all right. But like the thing that that table has looks way more like what I wanted. But like, how do I tell you that your interpretation of my stated mood or favorite color, or I don't know, pick another way to make a decision like is like, you got it wrong. Like it, it's one thing as a guest, when you look at a menu and you order a dish and it comes and it's not what you wanted, like that can, that can be a bummer. Right. And that can be a situation that is fraught in a service setting. Like, well, I ordered this, but it's not actually the thing I wanted or I see (laughs) something else. But like, at least there's a kind of existing framework for how to handle that conversation that most frequent diners and servers, et cetera, understand how to kind of work through that. But in a space where you're taking a lot of information, you're not providing much information to the guests and you're saying, trust us mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get this right you at least as a bar have to be prepared to like repour, remake like re- like do a lot of things pour just tastes of wine like i would i can't imagine using this methodology and then bringing a full glass of wine to someone like maybe i bring them a taste i'm like hey this seems like the thing you might like how do you feel about it like okay that's a way to get to that point fine yeah. it's maybe a little service intensive but that's okay potentially i just think though this this notion of like yeah, just not providing people with information up front. It, it just feels fraught at a minimum. Yeah, I agree. But I also think that, I mean, I can see where these places are coming from with kind of this different approach, um, especially in the context of the conversation that there are, you know, wine is is losing with the younger generations. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is a 
a gimmick, for lack of a better word, that seems to appeal to younger people who arguably know less about wine. Yeah, and maybe are more comfortable talking about their vibes than like their favorite varietals or whatever. Always the vibes. Yeah, lots of it's a vibes based <laughs> economy out there, Joanna. Yeah, um, I want to ask though, like, because you mentioned that this is a you know possibly a way to bring in younger consumers, consumers with less experience in the category, and you mentioned it as gimmicky, and and to me, I wonder too, and you know, we're not talking about any specific places here, at least so far, but I'm wondering, like, do you see this in the same vein as like a lot of other things that we've seen in bars and restaurants of late, which is like a kind of attempt to get a certain sort of media and or social oh. media coverage like does the wine wheel post well on social like that's kind of my question is like is it not so much a gimmick to make the guest feel good about themselves in the moment or just make it feel more fun but is it like a hey maybe we'll get some eyeballs out of this yeah 100 percent. i think there has been coverage about places like this and then they use this as like a marketing point, right? Um, when they pitch it to publishers like Vine Pair. Um, but but I think it's also like, yeah, how do you yeah, places need to have some edge to to get people to go there these days, especially when they're new. And mm-hmm. something like this makes a lot of sense for that, I think. I don't know why I don't know why I feel less cynical about it from a cocktail point of view than I do with wine. Do you feel that way too? Maybe it's because I feel like with cocktails that this has been a practice kind of longer. Like you could go yeah. into a cocktail bar a long time ago and you didn't necessarily know what you wanted, but you could say, oh, I like whiskey and I like ginger and like spice. And then a bartender could make you something. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is the like, way that the interaction with a bartender tends to flow as opposed to how it might flow with a server or sommelier around wine. And one of them is that like, with very few exceptions, the wine that you're being served is like a finished product that shows up at the restaurant or bar. And they're just kind of presenting it to you, right? They're not making it in house or, you know, anything like that. And so the ability to kind of tweak an existing product is much more viable in a bar setting. So like, that's part of it, I think, that you could potentially even have a situation, I mean, where, like, the bartender makes a drink that you are like, it's pretty good, but, like, maybe this, maybe it, I think it needs a touch more sweetness, or maybe it's, like, one dash more bitters, or who knows, whatever, right? Those are tweaks that you can, like, viably make, whereas if the wine conversation is kind of more binary, right? Either you like it or you don't, or it kind of meets your needs or it doesn't. And I also think that, like... In the conversations around cocktails, and I'd be curious if you agree with this. I'm not even sure that I fully do, but I'm going to say it anyhow, because, you know, what the hell? It's a podcast. I think that there is an expected or like the barrier to entry with cocktails and the knowledge barrier is, I think, much more about specific product and less about history, technique, or the exact specs of a drink. I mean, obviously, there are places and there are drinks that bring that out more, but I think that wine has part of its problem is that not only is the language kind of complex and confusing, but people are deathly afraid in a kind of gross generalization sense of being wrong about wine. Mm -hmm. And I think we just have internalized much more as cocktail drinkers 
that it's okay to have your own preferences and that you don't necessarily have to, you don't have to apologize for them exactly. And they're more than anything, they're kind of welcomed, right? I mean, we've talked about this with something like a martini, right? There isn't a singular martini recipe. There's an individual person's preference. Right. But with wine, you can't really be like, or to have that kind of thing to be like, oh, well, you know, I prefer red burgundy, but only from these three villages and only if it's from, you know, these specific, like that is a, now you were in like true wine geek world and that you're not really the subject of this conversation. (laughs) I think people feel really uncomfortable having strong opinions about wine or expressing them and don't feel comfortable sort of being pushing back maybe against what a supposed professional is telling them. Yes. Whereas with cocktails, I think it's easier to just be like, hey, this kind of didn't hit the exact way I wanted to, but like, let's just tweak it. Yeah, I think I was briefly discussing this with Hannah before we started recording. And, you know, with this particular wine bar, I said, you know, for people who are going in who don't know much about wine, they're really relying on the server to make a recommendation, you know, they could probably serve them anything like something really funky and natty and whatever, bready and foxy. And um, maybe they wouldn't like how it tastes, but they would probably not say anything. I could see that happening. For sure. And I think there's, in those settings in particular, I think you run into this sort of the multi, multi, uh, sort of the multi-part problem of people may not have in their eyes a a clear framework for what they're looking for in the first place. So they're maybe more open to, suggestion and i think candidly in a lot of wine bars these days and this is almost maybe a separate topic but i think is related in a way a lot of wine bar lists and not exclusively natural wine bars to be clear there's a lot of unfamiliar wines to even like pretty regular drinkers on a lot of these lists right wines from unfamiliar producers unfamiliar places unfamiliar varieties etc and so you kind of don't even you know it's almost like the list is less useful other than just kind of comparing price than it might be in a more kind of like a going back in time to a list that was like, here's your Sancerre, here's your Chablis, here's your, you know, Napa Cab and your William Valley Pinot Noir, et cetera, right? Where it's kind of like people have a who drink wine regularly might have a better idea of like kind of what to expect from those and could more easily kind of bucket themselves either as their general preferences or their specific preferences for the evening. Yeah. And I think cocktails just don't have that. I mean, there are plenty of cocktail ingredients that are, strange and unfamiliar and can be confusing to people who don't you know aren't deeply into it including like i go out sometimes and see things on a list and i'm like i don't know what that is like i'm sure that happens to most people but the ingredients are there you can usually ask a clarifying question or two i don't know it just it, it feels like a wine list these days a glass pour list in particular is like maybe less it's not that it's less needed, but the kind of information it can convey is less useful than it used to be. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. I agree. And we're definitely seeing it a lot in New York. Though I wonder if this approach to, you know, service in the drink space with the menu-less service um, is something we'll continue to see more of. Um, or if it, it is really just kind of a, a blip. Well, I have one last question for you about this, yeah. China, which is like, to cross over back to food for a second, mm-hmm. like a part of me wonders if this is driven by what I see as being an increased trend in like sort of omakase style service mm-hmm. in food, where it's kind of like you're there for the experience, 
you're sort of getting whatever the chef or whomever deigns to serve you. And you don't really like read a menu and make decisions. I mean, going even beyond a tasting menu setting where like maybe there's more, you know, you might know ahead of time some of what you're getting, or maybe you don't, you know, tasting menu restaurants and setups can be different. But like, if this sort of like notion to people of like, oh, I'm just kind of going for the experience, I, I'm putting my I'm putting my faith in the hands of the the chef and like whatever they serve me, I'm good with. Mm-hmm. And I think there are people who maybe view drinking similarly or feel like to be a cool, chill guest, they have to kind of be okay with this and like having preferences and stating them is like somehow like a like how our parents drank or whatever. I don't know. Hmm. I just I think that that's like maybe a broad a part of a broader sort of movement or I don't know, movement, but just kind of like a again come back to vibes in the sort of dining out space that people are uncomfortable not uncomfortable even but like just sort of a little unwilling to say like no I'd like to just like look at the menu and make a decision I don't want to have like every interaction with my server or whatever to be like this whole sort of ordering slash therapy session. Like, are we going to see more of that and kind of across the entire hospitality space? Well, just like, do you think some of this is being driven by more sort of food restaurant trends where like this notion of like surrendering control to the restaurant is, I think, at least that's definitely something I'm seeing here in Seattle more and more. Like you kind of like, you just kind of don't, you're kind of meant to go with the flow. Yeah. And like, if you don't, if that's not what you want, then like, you're kind of like the not a bad guest exactly, but like, why, why do you have to be in control all the time? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I, I've never, I, I, I honestly, I've never thought about it. And if it's something that's like, yes, I, I suppose when I think about like my parents and older <laughs> and older generations, grandparents, like definitely more vocal around um, uh, preferences when dining, dining and drinking out, um, and more specific about that stuff. Like they like what they like. They want it served a certain way where I don't feel that about myself. So I suppose maybe it's kind of, it's, it's something that comes, comes with age. (laughs) Yeah. To, to ask it one last way. And then, you know, kind of maybe that's, that's all, (laughs) all I have to say about this is like, it's not even just about to me having a preference, right? I think there's, there's a, I think we could all agree that there's a, there's benefit in not being exclusively the kind of drinker who like walks into a bar and is like, you know, here's how I, the only drink I drink and exactly how I want it. Like, mm-hmm. that's kind of like a, why are you here kind of vibe in some senses, right? Like we, I think you and I, and probably most of the listeners, part of what we love about drinking out is like discovering new things and being open to, to whether it's wine, beer, cocktails, et cetera, like something that we just, we don't have at home that we don't know how to make that we're not familiar with. Yeah. But that like, the paradigm or like the model by which you kind of explore new things seems to be in the case of the bars and restaurants we're describing here, shifting even more to the kind of like, just come on in and we'll pour you something and you'll like it. And that's kind of like, there's an inviting nature to that, which I think is cool. I think there's also an element to it that may take even, you know, people who like exploration and like trying new things a little beyond their comfort zone, because in the end, like, you still kind of maybe want to know like what you're getting and what you're paying for it before the bill shows up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, even in just uh, discussing it earlier, like I could see how this, uh, you know, spinning a wheel is fun. Right. And that's a part of it too. And who doesn't want to go out and have like a more fun adventure of an experience. Um, so 
So yeah, I, I get that. And it's also like trying to bring more fun to the wine space isn't a bad thing. Yeah. And like all things, this may be an idea that needs a little bit of refinement before it sort of truly shines. Yeah. Anyway, something interesting to explore and keep an eye on. Uh, if you've had this experience, let us know at podcast at vinepair.com and what you think of it, of course. Um, and otherwise, Zach, have a wonderful weekend and we'll chat next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.